I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. If you clicked on this, you know this is a special edition of Scratch. A couple weeks ago, we released the first in what is going to be a series of ongoing research reports in collaboration with Attest and Imperial College here in London to uh, dig into and try to understand what is it that makes certain challenger brands successful and others not. And so we released three reports, which we're calling Sparks. And uh, last week, my co-founder and I, so DuBose, and Rajesh, who is the Associate Professor of Marketing at Imperial College, who collaborated with us on the research, jumped into the studio over at my old stomping grounds at 11FS to present the findings in a live webinar. But we thought that we would also release it here on the podcast in case people didn't catch it or in case people wanted to listen to the audio-only version. I will say, you know, it's presenting research. There's lots of charts and graphs and data points, so it is probably going to be a little bit trickier to get all of it out of just the audio recording. But if you go over to either my LinkedIn profile or the We Are Rival YouTube account, you can see the full recording on video as well. So hope you enjoy. It's a little bit of a long one, but there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And um, yeah, without further ado, on to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are incredibly excited about what is hopefully the first of many uh, Spark reports and webinars like this that we are going to do. So this has been part of the rival roadmap and game plan for a while, as many of you know, because I was pretty relentless in asking for feedback and input from a lot of you as we were starting to think about how we wanted to build the research function of Rival out. Uh, and so where we're at, we're very lucky to have our partnership with Rajesh and the marketing faculty at Imperial College, as well as our partners at Attest that have powered a lot of the research that we've done and will be doing as part of Spark. But the idea with this is the reason that we exist as rival, kind of the uh, North Star that we are traveling towards in the lifespan of this company is we're trying to answer the question of what is it that makes successful challenger brands? What are they doing differently? How are they approaching the market? How are they structuring their teams and building culture internally? Anything and everything that boils down to what allows certain businesses and brands to disrupt the category that they're in and others to just attempt to, but not actually make it. And so we're um, we're understanding that and trying to deliver that with a lot of the work that we're doing with our clients, of course. But we're also investigating that and trying to understand it from the research that we're doing. And so that is what Spark is all about. And the idea and the reason behind the name is that we're hoping that we can drop these research reports. Some of them will be big, some of them will be small. But we're hoping that they can kind of provide that spark of new ideas, new thinking for people listening, our clients, our audience, and the wider marketing industry to think and do things a little bit differently and hopefully um, drive challenger growth for their own business. So that's what we're about. So let me um, switch into the presentation for today. And we are going to be releasing this as a podcast. So if you are listening, we're going to do our best to VO the slides that we're going to be presenting. But a lot of this is based on data and research that we've done. So there are graphs and there are charts and things like that. So you might want to click over to either LinkedIn or YouTube where you'll be able to see a recording of this if you are listening. And I think for everyone who's interested in the charts you're about to see, the presentation you're about to see, that'll be made available on SlideShare after this. So look for yeah. that as a link. So don't worry about having to screen grab anything. It's all going to be available. Great. Here we go. So for our first research drop, this being Q2 of 2022, we identified three trends that we see challenger brands deploying and demonstrating successfully to become or try to become rivals in their market. Again, businesses that are truly disrupting the category that they're in. So those three trends are what we're going to take you through today. The first is what we're calling the rise of the puffer fish challenger. And this is really about how modern media and distribution tactics enable challenger brands to appear bigger and sometimes even appear that they're moving faster, that they have more traction, more velocity in the market than they otherwise 
might be. So I'm not going to reveal too much of what's in there. DuBose is going to take you through that in a second, but that's one that we're really excited about. Next, we're looking at the transition from fans and an audience to actually brands building communities around what they stand for. So a lot of challenger brands are able to kind of create this connection around their brand where people can actually connect with each other and derive value from other people that buy into and believe in the same story and the same vision of the brand. And that's different than an audience. You know, an audience, you speak to an audience one to many, a community you create among people. And as DuBose is going to talk about in a second, um, there's a huge implication as we start to look at Web3, businesses that are being built in the Web3 world or for the Web3 world, and the importance of community within that. And then lastly, the third trend we're calling the great COVID crunch. So, you know, everybody's gone through, of course, very different experiences with COVID, uh, depending on the country, the market, the situation that each person is in. But everybody is also kind of reconciling their COVID concerns and behaviors with the post-pandemic aspirations that they have. So what are the expectations for consumers of what brands should be doing? How is that impacting certain markets? We're going to get into that as well. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it over to... Dubos to drive through uh, the actual research and the findings is please do drop questions in the comment section as we go. And I will do my best to kind of MC things and bring up questions as we go. But we'd love for this to be as conversational as possible with those listening. And with that, turn it over to Dubos to talk about Pufferfish. Amazing. Thanks, Eric. So the Pufferfish Challenger is something that we're really intrigued by. I think as we start to look at what that means... One of the things that's really interesting is considering the speed limit to challenger growth that's existed. We know generally most startups, because of budgets, because of distribution, feel they have a steps they have to go through before they can actually achieve kind of big brand behavior. But these things are being broken. The speed limit is changing. And what we're seeing is really greater access to traditional media channels, so through Biddable, through alternatives to TV like Connected TV or OTT, changing supply chains, so new options for delivery, new options for distribution, and increased social amplification. The ability to very, very quickly, let's say platforms like TikTok, uh, find a fan base and scale it, have allowed a smaller brand to puff up very, very quickly, even if the sales volume or the sophistication of that brand isn't as built up as it would seem. And I think this is interesting because smaller challengers have the chance to deliver outsized impact in consumers' minds by doing this, appearing more established in how they advertise, where they sell, and how consumers advocate for them. Because naturally, we are more loyal and more engaged to larger and established brands. This is actually something we wanted to test with the research that we'll go through in a moment. It was something that was very surprising as he still stands. So I think one of the interesting things with all of these is we try to consider how does it create a rival brand? And I think the interesting thing here, and, and what Rajesh will talk a bit more about in a moment, is signal effects. The idea that being in certain places, behaving in certain ways, signals the idea of quality, signals the idea of resource. And I think it's interesting that for a rival brand, for a challenger that wants to get out in the market and then scale, there's an opportunity here to appear closer to the, the throne in the market, if you will, than they might naturally be. So with that in mind, we started to look at a bit of research of how this breaks down. One of the things we wanted to initially consider was how consumers consider purchasing a product. Now, obviously, it changes category to category, sector to sector. But one of the questions we started with in our primary research across the U.S. and the U.K. was asking, what are the factors that would drive you to choose a new product in a new category? Kind of cutting free of the, the legacy of a brand. And what's interesting is it really frames the challenge that a lot of uh, startups face. Discount and familiarity are the things that drive consumer discovery. If you're a new brand, familiarity isn't going to come quickly. So discounting is generally the way that you've had to get in there. You've had to steal share by appearing cheaper, by appearing more valuable, by going on promotion when you launch into the market. But one of the things we think is quite interesting is what if you could inflate the sense of familiarity and trust faster through the channels you're on? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the opportunity in new media channels, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment, to access and tap into that level of trust and familiarity earlier on, which is going to give a lot of challenger brands a new path towards this idea of seeming established versus just doing it on price promotion as they used to have to. 
So it was interesting if we consider the challenge that brands are facing, we then thought about what are the channels that can help to drive that sense of trust and familiarity, giving an alternative to these, these puffer fish brands. And I think what's interesting across the U.S. and the U.K. is uh, obviously there are some slight differences in how we trust different media channels across countries. I won't speak to the stereotypes of Americans or Brits here, but I think one of the things that we do find is, you know, in-store, unsurprisingly, <laughs> is one of the most trusted channels. The, when we consider it, it was ranked on average between fourth and fifth when we give kind of 10 channels and, and ask people to rank them. Television becomes second, uh, especially in the UK. In the US, there's slightly less trust of it. And then finally, the third is search. And I think what's interesting here is you have two, in-store and search, that are both channels that feel like uh, the, the kind of brass tacks reality of what you have to buy. Either you're the shelf and you're being marketed to, or you're searching for information. You're trying to find guidance. Television is the interesting one here, if you think about it, because that's the one where you can push the brand out into consumers' homes. That's the one where uh, most major brands have always been able to hold an advantage because of large TV buys. One of the things we think is quite interesting is when you think about digital video, when you think about OTT, there are opportunities to start to disrupt that. Now, one of the intriguing things that you'll see on this chart, though, is that digital video is listed out, and it still isn't as trusted as television overall, despite the idea of a fluidity for how television content lives across streaming, across catch-up TV, uh, it is still seen as distinctly different. However, it's not that much less trusted. It is still middle of the road for the channels we looked at. It's on par with, as you'll see, uh, social advertising there, which is technically the, the fourth most trusted of the channels we considered. And we think what's really interesting here is a combination of some larger buys across something like television or across digital video used correctly, combined with social advertising, is delivering more trust than one would expect for challenger brands. One of the most interesting things to consider is the flip side of that, though. Channels where particularly a lot of startups may play and dip their toes in uh, aren't really that trusted. Digital audio and podcast, obviously uh, the one this will be featured on a side, and direct mail are both channels that were ranked lowest when it came to trust. Now, I think this is interesting because they also have some of the lowest barriers to entry, if you will. Being able to push out direct mail or being able to buy certain podcast placements is something that a lot of different, less established brands have played in. So I think there's an interesting thing here that where you see some challengers have played, there's particularly less trust to start with, whereas where you see some of the channels where challengers are getting more access to, there's still a level of trust despite that access being there. And that's an interesting opportunity. I think one of the most interesting things, though, is obviously people perceive channels differently. So this is what uh, trust looks like across age in the UK, as an example. The US had a slightly less variance. I think the UK really paints an amazing picture here. So as you see, something like trust in television over on the left-hand side varies wildly based on age. 18 to 29-year-olds ranked at around fifth out of the 10 channels when forced to rank, whereas 50-plus were ranking it on average uh, three and a half. So there's really that sense that trust in something like television does change and skews older. Uh, the flip side of that is something like social advertising. 18 to 29-year-olds were likely to put social advertising in the top three channels they trust. 50-plus, uh, as one would expect, uh, the stereotype holds true on this, that older audiences are still more distrustful of social advertising in general, putting it as one of the least trusted channels they would see. One slightly interesting kind of uh, point to pull out here is also radio. I think radio is intriguing when we consider levels of trust in the United Kingdom because we actually find that it has a very similar profile to television still, despite the idea that you're starting to see a bleed between digital audio and, uh, and radio content coming together. Radio is still one of those that if as an older audience is perceived as very trustworthy, as a younger audience, they actually rank it as one of the least trustworthy channels. I think the key takeout here, though, is really down to that idea that we know challenger brands are going to have access to trusted channels, but depending on who your audience is, where you find that trust is going to change. So I think it, just to jump in here real quick, I think it's interesting. We talk a lot about this idea of where is the underpriced 
attention, mm. you know, having spent a long time at VaynerMedia and in the world of Gary Vee. It's uh, a lot of what he talks about too. But, you know, this idea of where can you find arbitrage in the attention landscape? Where can you find the attention of your audience for cheaper than your competitive set? There's also this idea of kind of trust arbitrage mm. in a way, right? How can you look at different media channels, not just from an efficiency standpoint, but also an efficacy standpoint when it comes to building trust. And, you know, I don't know. And, you know, again, we interviewed a bunch of these challenger brands, but be curious to understand if that's kind of an intentional thing that they're looking at, or they just kind of get there by the way that they do their media buys. But I think a, a big part of the pufferfish nature is not just kind of showing up in new places, but showing up in places that actually deliver a bigger impact in terms of the trust and the equity that they build. It's so true. I think the opportunity for a challenger brand to not just be known, but start to be familiar, salient, and trusted cannot be understated as an advantage. Because generally, yeah. the the old progression of a, van, a brand you know, is, is the Scarface principle of things. First, you had to get the power and the money, and those then you would get kind of wider success. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, the challenge here is these steps can be broken if the certain arbitrage for attention and, and trust can be found. Yeah, and just to jump in here, the in-store one is the one that I think gets very little attention these days. Mm. Um, but we can see just how much consumers trust that channel. Uh, and so are there arbitrage opportunities there that haven't been looked at? I think that's an interesting angle as well. So true. And I think one of the things we found in our report was really the sense that if you can start to tap into new ways to distribute your product, you can start to tap into ways to get that in-store trust uh, easier and faster. I think you know, one of the things we really, really touch on in the wider report is the potential of rapid delivery services to break into consumers' homes faster. I think you know, when you look at the U.S., you look at the U.K., the growth and competition of these services at the moment is a real boon for brands. Brands that can really, uh, through partnership or through distribution, become more prominent as consumers are being driven to new shopping experiences and then drive trial where they wouldn't normally be able to or where they would be held back based on retailer distribution deals. Yeah, and wouldn't that also your product packaging can be such an important billboard for mm -hmm. your brand? Uh, so that's another way in which you can grab that attention in a way and the moment at which consumers are likely to trust you the most is while they're actually shopping. So true. So to that shopping point, actually, one of the other things we tried to consider, and to Eric's earlier point about underpriced uh, trust as well as underpriced attention, was really how do you start to drive shopping behavior and social? Because what we're seeing is a growth of the opportunity uh, through a, a fragmentation of social platforms for brands to start to drive product purchase and product recommendation. And we were quite curious to see which of these really delivers. One of the things we were intrigued with here is really looking at what platforms across the U.S. and the U.K. drive recommendation. So where has a consumer said, I got a product recommendation from this site? And uh, which ones have said it actually drove a direct purchase for them. They clicked through, they bought something, they went out and got it right away. And I think what's striking here when you see it is really Facebook has been around long enough that it's built a, a, a massive of experiences. So, you know, being around as one of the OG platforms, people are probably going to have come across a product that they've either taken a recommendation from or they've bought from so far. Instagram, with its focus on really driving a commercialization in platform, it's not surprising that you're also seeing those numbers. It's intriguing when you look at it versus a platform like Pinterest that is really, really focused on driving product curation and being the internet's wish list and really highlights the ability of where Meta is sat down to, to start to drive a commercial reality and enable small businesses and challengers to drive product purchase behavior. But the one I'd really love to drill in on here is TikTok. I think TikTok is intriguing because the growth of it is, is, is noteworthy. And also, the maturation of the platform hasn't really fully gotten to the place that you would see with a Pinterest and Instagram or a Facebook yet. However, the, the ability to drive, you know, the TikTok made me buy it uh, type mentality for challengers is incredible. I mean, you know, they've already started to build uh, an amazing case study of brands from Little Moons uh, to uh, many others where you would see viral success on the platform has actually transferred through to recommendation and purchase. And you know, we're seeing that at a level that, as it's shown here, is similar to what we would see for Instagram, similar to what we would see in the U.S. for Facebook. Uh, and then above that of a, a Snapchat or a Pinterest in many instances. And we think that's quite powerful. I'm just thinking of um, 
one of the interviews that we did on Scratch was with um, So Young Kang, who's the CMO of EOS, mm. the kind of uh, their beauty wholesale, wholesale brand. But they did they did an activation on TikTok that we covered in the interview that actually led to I think it was like four thousand five hundred percent growth mm. in, in sales of a product based on what they did with this TikTok influencer. So there's a ton of potential there for sure if you get it right. Indeed. And I think influencers are such an interesting point because the thing we looked at next actually was the power of influencers and how that can help pufferfish brands seem larger than they would normally be. I think as one would expect, influencers skew along age lines. So looking at the ability for influencers to first engage or drive follow, and secondly, to drive uh, trust with either paid product recommendations or unpaid product recommendations was quite powerful. Uh, what's intriguing when you look at the U.S. and the U.K. population is about 19% say they follow and trust any product recommendation from an influencer. That number increases when you look at a younger audience up to 25%. And as one would expect, with an older audience, it goes down to 9%. Uh, but what's really, really interesting here is the mass of the audiences we're seeing, especially amongst 18 to 29, 48% of them, say they follow and don't trust paid product recommendations from influencers, but they trust unpaid recommendations. And we think this is huge because if you think about the regulations that are going on in the industry for paid product disclosure, for the idea of influencers having to be much more transparent about what they've received for the recommendations they're giving out, it's making organic recommendation like gold dust. And I think this is really, really interesting because brands are really going to face the idea of you can elevate your prominence and elevate a sense of everyone using you and recommending you through influencers. But to truly tap into that, you need it to feel authentic. You need to have an authentic recommendation that feels organic. Now, one of the other things we think is quite interesting, uh, just finally, is how this all comes together for influencer trust amongst those who, who've been socially influenced in their shopping. So what we looked at here were the attitudes towards influencers, particularly from those who said that they had taken a product recommendation or bought a product uh, based on any social platform. And what you would see is, uh, is exactly what we would expect. Those who have been socially influenced in their shopping behavior are much more likely to trust influencers in any recommendation they give out, uh, but uh, across any kind of age group and across any kind of market. And that's something we think is really interesting because it speaks to the idea that brands have to crack an authenticity problem with influencers, but brands also can use wider social activity, wider engagement to make the influencers they've pulled into their orbit work harder to be more believable. A holistic plan on how to puff up as a challenger brand is the thing that is going to make every part of the puffer fish arsenal work harder. Yeah. Well, Dubosa, I wanted to add in a, a little bit more spice on that on the, the consumer psychology for puffer fish challengers. And really what I wanted to talk about here is why to do this. Why should we puff up? Um, and understanding the psychology of that for consumers, I think, really motivates this point about, for example, going after that um, attention in the areas where there are arbitrage opportunities and how to really build out that way. So a few things I wanted to mention. One is what DuBose mentioned earlier, this idea of signal effects of advertising. So this is a, a well-known finding from uh, 40, 50 years ago about especially TV advertising which is that when people view a television advert, they form an inference. They say, why did this brand advertise? And they think, well, if they've paid a lot of money for the advertisement, if they're on a, a network that's expensive, then that brand must really believe in their product. They must be really confident in what they're selling. And that then translates into the consumer also gaining confidence in what's being sold. So we think about why is that so important for a challenger, especially in those early days where you don't have that kind of audience, you don't have that kind of loyalty. You need to build out that confidence for consumers, and you do that through the advertising. Now, there is a, a limit here. We don't want to be, of course, wasting our um, advertising budget just to show that we can spend money on advertising. So this is why finding the right kind of media and finding those arbitrage opportunities that allow you to be on those spaces that are trusted, 
that's where this signal effect could really work uh, quite effectively for challengers. So I think that's one big part of it is the signal effects. The second part is what we DuBose mentioned earlier, this idea of familiarity, how familiarity breeds trust as well as liking. So this is a well-known finding in psychology that also translates into consumer behavior as well, what we call the mere exposure effect. And I think we all have experienced this before in the domain of music. So you hear a song enough times and you start to like it. It kind of, it becomes more fluent for you to process that. And then you start to say, oh, well, that's actually pretty good. It's not just about being aware of the music. It actually changes the way you process it so that you like it more. So you see a brand more in prominent places. You see it placed in the right positions. And not only does that raise that awareness, it increases liking directly simply by seeing it more and more. The third thing is about brands and how they're perceived, depending on where they're placed. So I think it's really important for challengers to realize that coming in as a challenger, consumers have certain stereotypes about them. They see them as a small company, so it's probably warm. It's probably communal in that sense. This is a brand that will take care of me, that they won't take advantage because it's a small company, which is a good place to be. Of course, warmth is very important, but it's also important to be competent and be, to be seen as someone who can really deliver on whatever the brand's promises. Uh, and so this is where this idea of the underdog brand bi- biography really comes in, which is there's something to be said about being an underdog brand. And if you're an underdog brand, you're seen as one who's really trying hard to win over customers. You have passion, you have determination. And when consumers see that, that could be very attractive to them if they identify with those traits of a brand. Now, think about if you're a challenger and you normally go after the kinds of channels that challengers should stay in. But now suddenly, you're actually playing in the arena with all the big boys, how is that going to be perceived by consumers? It's a, it's a big plus for them, for many of them at least, I would say. It's about they're seeing that look at this brand rise and do I feel that I identify with this brand as well? And to the extent I do, it adds, enhances my liking towards it. So I think there's a lot of brands that could benefit from this idea of how can I be an underdog and appear to be competing um, at the same level as uh, the big boys? Um, so I think these are some of the the benefits of puffing up from a psychology standpoint. And, and that's why I really like this metaphor, the puffer fish, this idea that uh, how do we compete um, and, and how do we project our, our space much more? I think that's brilliant. And when we talk about the puffer fish overall and, and the value of it in consumer psychology, I think activating that value we have a few principles we throw out that we, we get paid by the Pufferfish reference, by the way. Uh, so what we're calling Pufferfish 101. Uh, five things just to keep in mind if you want to activate what you've heard here. The first of those is really pay to puff through experimental budgeting. And what we mean by that is have a fund of your media where you're thinking about things that you're going to test and learn on. Go to places where you might not normally go. Try to stretch the brand to new areas. Secondly, Seek out underpriced trust and attention. Seeking out underpriced attention, understanding places where consumers have gone, uh, but the prices haven't caught up to yet is is key. It's one of the, the bedrocks of modern media planning. What we would argue is to go beyond that, you should also think about where you can foster trust at a lower cost than you could on other channels. Third, plan to place in new ways. Think about distribution and how you can go to new areas to drive a Uh, new adoption, breaking up the shopper journey. Fourth, incubate in social communities. So just because you can scale in somewhere like TikTok doesn't mean that you shouldn't start with a beating heart community that really rallies around you and that underdog reference that uh, Rajesh was talking about. And then finally, foster influencer authenticity, either through long-term deals with influencers, alignment with influencers that feel more organic in your association, or through holistically planning them together with your wider social activity, so you get that priming effect that we talked about before. Great. So we got a couple comments and um, a question in here. So first we have Serana, who's making a play for hashtag LinkedIn made me buy it for services, which I really like. Maybe we can get that going. Um, someone commenting on uh, the EOS episode about 
the TikTok case study, which again, yeah, if you haven't checked that out, I would definitely recommend it. You can either listen to the Scratch episode or if you Google EOS TikTok, you'll find some references to that case study. It's really interesting. And then from Joe, so on an earlier slide, you mentioned traditional marketing as helping challenger brands appear bigger. Did that mean TV specifically? And isn't it an affordability issue, which I think is a good thing to touch on? It's a great question. So when we were looking at TV, what we were really thinking about is what is the impact on connected television, VOD or OTT, and the overall perception of what's a TV ad and what isn't. Overall cost and affordability is always going to be an issue when you try to break into something like TV at scale. But what we're seeing is an increased amount of options to get on there cheaper through connected television, through the VOD options. But also, if you look at uh, examples such as in the UK, addressable television advertising through things like Sky IQ are starting to lower in cost as well. And I think what these are going to start to do is allow you to break in as a smaller brand to those areas that are naturally assumed to just be expensive. Now, the market will catch up with that at a certain point, but we feel there is a gap to find that uh, trust arbitrage, if you will, uh, that'll probably exist for the next few years. So television is definitely one of the main drivers we've seen of this, but I think you could apply that also to print. You could apply that to out-of-home, especially when you start to consider digital out-of-home options. So we feel there's a a rich canvas for potential puffer fish here. Yeah, it's those channels that kind of carry more weight. Mm -hmm. we were talking about. All right, I'm conscious of time, so let's keep rolling. Let's get into the second trend for which we do not have a cute name like Pufferfish. We'll have to work on that. We don't, and it's one of my biggest regrets about this. (laughs) So what we want to talk about is brand fans to brand communities. Really, at the heart of this, what we're seeing is brands, especially challengers, are moving beyond the traditional storyteller dynamic online Uh, where basically communities that you reach are there to consume your content, e.g. your fans on Facebook, your followers on Twitter, to a facilitator dynamic, where brands can create communities and spaces around shared values or interests. They are a platform, not the main focus. Now, we use the term expansion here, and that's because there's always going to be a role for brands to tell their stories in certain channels. But we just feel there is an expansion in roles to where you can also think about specifically with the growth of Web3, with the growth of wider digital channels, to start to think about how you can become a facilitator as well. And we feel there's a lot of forces that are accelerating this in the marketing landscape, from an increase in the importance of first-party data and owning more of the experience, through to platform innovations that we looked at, such as Discord or the Metaverse. And we think it's interesting because community has always powered challengers. Uh, And we think rival brands, those that grow to really rival the way things are done in the category, grow because they build and leverage brand digitally. And I think when you think about how to build a branded community, that's going to impact not just how you go to market, in trying to find owned and rented audiences, but it's also going to come to how you build the brand in general. How do you give something that people want to pick up and run with? So if we think about this in general, uh, one of the things we found here, which I think looking at it in hindsight is a bit the sky is blue, but it's always good to look outside and check, which is most people feel likely to follow brands online. Now, it doesn't mean they like it, but it does mean they know it's part of the online experience. The majority of people felt like they were likely to engage with brands and social media, seeing it as a part of being online. Now, what we think is interesting about this, though, is what that looks like per platform. So what we have here is the percentage of U.S. and U.K. social media brand followers, those that said it was uh, in any way likely they would follow a brand online. And I think what's interesting is there are still platforms where brands are going to be surprising if you see them. Uh, LinkedIn being one of them, but also Reddit, Twitch. These are intriguing. Twitch being 52% uh, don't use the platform. But then when you look at it, 13% say it's very unlikely they would engage with the brand on it. There's 16% saying it's uh, somewhat unlikely. This is interesting because these are tighter knit communities. The other thing I'd pull out uh, is thinking about Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I think one of the intriguing things is Facebook and Instagram have been around long enough. It has seen part and parcel that brands are going to attempt to speak to you there. But when we think of uh, platforms such as TikTok or even Pinterest in this instance, you start to see that there's not uh, an even expectation of brand engagement. TikTok actually has a 23% believe it's very likely that they're going to run into a brand there. That's quite surprising when you look at some of the other platforms that have also uh, grown over the last four to five years, say a Pinterest or a Snapchat, it's at 15%. 
that that's very likely. So once again, as we talked about in the previous slide, it really highlights the interesting uh, perspective of TikTok as one where brands can play more freely and quickly the, than you would normally expect in a lot of platforms that haven't really built up that brand expectation. I really think that number is going to go up. I mean, to be honest, you know, a lot of this stuff when it comes to new social platforms or as we start to talk about Web3 and what that means for brands, like history repeats itself. A lot of this stuff is the same cycles all over again. Mm -hmm. I think back to 2008, 2009, the conversations were, one, is the social media thing, like, is this real? Is this mm. going to matter? And then, well, why would a brand ever be on Facebook? That's for college kids. Why would a brand ever be on Instagram? That's for people posting pictures. And so I think particularly with TikTok, you know, there's been a lot of those conversations over the last 12 months. Well, is it a thing? Now I think we're past that point. Should brands be on it? But I think the trickier thing with TikTok is a lot of the brands that you see on that platform, they're kind of taking the Facebook, Instagram approach. And in some cases, even just the content and putting it on TikTok, and it just doesn't work that well. It's a completely different channel. It's a completely different culture. The type of content that does well is completely different on it. So with all this stuff, I think there's opportunity, but it comes down to how well and how good the content is that you put out there. Shout out to Duolingo on TikTok, which is one of my favorite TikTok accounts in like overall, not just branded TikTok accounts. If you haven't checked it out yet, you're welcome. I spend more time watching them on TikTok than I do learning Spanish and doing yeah. it. So <laughs> might be a problem for their business at some there. point. <laughs> but I think to that point, you know, one of the things, if we really drill down into this data on the next slide, it, it's down to the idea that net engagement amongst users really highlights that, uh, I think to Eric's point, TikTok is, is in a league that's starting to come closer to Facebook and Instagram than it is some of the other platforms it's competing with. So what we look at here is really the overall net score, uh, whether uh, you're likely or unlikely to expect a brand to be on these platforms. And obviously, Facebook and Instagram in both the U.S. and the U.K. have very strong brand presences, as we talked about before. But specifically in the U.S., when you drill down on TikTok, it is 40% net likely that users expect to see a brand there, 21% net likely in the UK. The only platforms that have a higher range than this are Facebook and Instagram. This is huge. And when you look at some of the platforms that don't expect net engagement, especially in the UK, LinkedIn, Reddit, and Twitch. These are ones where they are, they're seen as much cleaner and freer of brands. Snapchat is an interesting one given some of the advancements they've made to try to give a stronger brand toolkit and reach over the last few years. But you start to see they found much more traction in the U.S. on this than the U.K. So one of the things this made us think about, especially when we consider Web3, is especially on platforms that are a bit more insular, those Twitches of the world, the Reddits of the world, what role can a brand play? And I think this is where we went back to the idea of brand less is the focus and more as the community creator. Because the value that is going to come through, especially when we think about emerging platforms in Web3, is curating and creating experiences. We've already seen it with Nike and other brands on Roblox. We're seeing it through activations on Decentraland, through NFT-based activations where you try to foster more of a community, through Discord is the hub of all of these in Web3, where really Discord-branded communities, be it the Gucci Vault, be it what uh, Taco Bell, TikTok, Slim Jim are doing, it's intriguing that they're not the ones logging on every day to post posts to people. They're on every day to join conversations that people are having, sparking different points that people uh, want to engage with. So when we think about engagement with brands overall in Web3, one of the things that's incredibly intriguing is the power of gaming and crypto. These are the things where people naturally already expect brands. So as you see here, uh, especially amongst awareness of it, you start to get more awareness of things like Fortnite, Roblox, and cryptocurrency. This is expected because I think a lot of brands have flirted with the idea of cryptocurrency, NFTs. They've started to, even if you haven't bought into engagement with the project, you've heard that someone's done something. But the thing I really want to delve in on here quickly is just the idea of when you're talking about building a branded community in the metaverse, which is something we should probably make a swear jar for, uh, it's down to the idea that the metaverse at the moment for consumers means Fortnite and Roblox. Like at the end of the day, we included Second Life in this just because I, I really wanted to, to see if anyone remembered it. And at the end of the day, gaming is how people are seeing a lot of metaversal activations. And I think that's not surprising because gaming is naturally always going to be a space that forces brands to provide value and foster community. 
two things that we think are really key when we start talking about Web3. Now, it's worth talking about really quickly that attention is not created equal. So when you look at search activity around Web3 terms like cryptocurrency, the metaverse, NFT, I've included baking bread here as my uh, coronavirus example. So imagine how many people Googled that back in 2020. Now look at the volumes of everything else that are well above it. I think one of the things that's always worth keeping in mind is attention is not static. And attention is what you need to drive communities to capture and scale them. And what you're going to see is a shift, uh, as we've already seen, from things like cryptocurrency through consumer interest in the metaverse through to things like NFTs. And these are naturally declining at the moment. Now, that doesn't mean they're going away. It just means as things emerge and there's a lot of cultural conversation around them, there's naturally a, a lower barrier to engagement. And what we're going to find is, I think, brands that go into Web3 properties and provide a value that can counteract declining attention are going to succeed. The ones that naturally think line always goes up are going to be the ones that aren't investing their activity in the proper way. So finally, to that point, one of the things we tried to think about are what sectors hold the highest community appeal when we talk about things like communities or virtual goods? So we asked consumers uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., you know, what sectors would you be most likely to engage with if it becomes a Discord, virtual space, or an NFT project? We also included forums, just because I feel that's one of those things that naturally is timeless. Uh, and what we found... It's uh, that literally food and drink brands, entertainment, fashion, and beauty, the things that have more frequent everyday appeal are the ones that are more likely to be able to foster community. It's back to that idea that points of interaction, frequency of interaction, is going to breed a familiarity that is going to allow them to have a head start when we talk about Web3 projects. Now, that doesn't mean to say that finance, automotive, charity, and luxury, the four that were lowest ranked to be uh, immediate ones that people wanted to join, don't win at this. One of my favorite examples of an NFT project, what Gucci is doing, what Super Gucci is doing with uh, the Super Plastic Partnership, I think is brilliant. It just means that there's a lower starting probability of success and that we need to consider that when we're planning and scaling communities. It really does come down to the value that you offer through the activation. Right. Of course, there's going to be correlation, you know, across these categories like we're seeing in this graph here. But if you could pull these apart and either look at challengers within the space versus incumbents within the space, for example, finance brands, obviously a very broad bucket, something like Monzo, people are going to be probably much more hmm. keen to kind of get involved in the community that they're building versus a traditional legacy bank. And then also, like you said, Gucci being an incumbent, but they're doing something interesting that adds value. And so people will find that appealing. But it really comes down to that at the end of the day. But to your point, it is important to understand kind of the default expectation of the category that you're in. Indeed. So I wanted to add, so based on what Eric is just saying about the value that you add to the customer, to the consumer, um, just to take the broad picture here, what do we mean by brand community? So this is something that's been studied over time also in the academic literature. And we think about the relationships that a customer has. Of course, the customer to customer relationship is the key point here with brand community. But think about what that then does. If you can strengthen those relationships between consumers or between customers, what does that do? It also strengthens the relationship between the customer and the brand and between the customer and the product or service that they're using, the value that they get from it, and then also between the customer and perhaps the bigger company in which that brand is housed. And so we can see those kinds of examples that came through would say, for example, with gaming, um, how if you engage with a brand in a game, how that strengthens that relationship within the game, strengthens that brand uh, perception, and also gets that consumer much more likely to use that product or service down the line. So that's one view at it is that it's much bigger than just that customer to customer relationship, but what it does overall. The other part of it when we think about brand community is think about how you can actually trigger that. And what are the elements to include in your brand community efforts? When we think about brand community, it includes the rituals that consumers have with each other, their social interactions, and their shared beliefs. So um, a number of examples come to mind, but one is, for example, we're talking about uh, the automotive sector. Many 
owners of the same car might have a certain way of engaging with each other when they see someone else driving the same car. A famous one is people who drive Jeep Wranglers. They see someone else driving a Jeep and they wave at them. That kind oh, of thing. Oh, the Jeep wave. Yeah, the Jeep wave, right? So th- that's a, a, a great example of a ritual or in, even could trigger a social interaction that, r- that helps to strengthen that sense of community. So it's not enough to just say we're going to make it available for people to interact. How are you going to ensure that there's enough of those touch points when they do interact? So we see that in the previous slide, looking at food and drink brands. Why are they able to foster communities even more? It's because of the frequency of consumption that you can actually turn that into some kind of ritual. Uh, Same with entertainment. Some of these other brands may think about how can you translate what you're doing, which is perhaps a purchase that happens very infrequently. How can you um, somehow translate that into something that's a bit more common on a day-to-day basis or at least uh, a more regular basis so you can have those rituals and social interactions? And of course, the net result here is that you have a number of people who have some kind of mind meld about what does a brand mean to them? Uh, So, yes, they're getting value from the product service that's being sold, but they also get the value from the brand, and that comes from that community, feeling a part of something beyond just uh, uh, what is being offered. Um, So I think there's there's a lot of importance placed on brand community these days, and I think for good reason from a consumer psychology standpoint, because people ultimately uh, are a reflection of their brands that they use, and there's a a lot of emphasis on on this uh, now, which is how our brand can help that consumer achieve certain identities, achieve certain social goals that they have, including connecting with others. Indeed. And I think it's interesting what you mentioned there about uh, thinking beyond just that one experience or that one consumer relationship. Because I think one of the things we found on this is really you scale through partnership. It's one of the things that we feel is a planning principle of planning for branded community. And what we mean by that is thinking about all the different partners you can bring in, both from a consumer point of view, a collaborator point of view, or potentially other brands. One of the things we found, you know, looking at a lot of the successful Web3 communities and projects that are already out there, they don't treat this like a zero-sum game. They treat this like something where everyone can succeed together. If you're interacting with other brands on, on social media years ago, the modern version of that brand or now is the idea of, hey, come over and, and collab with us on something. Come over and interact with the people we've got in our community. There's value that can be brought through building stronger links, not just with different consumers, but with brands overall. I think some of the other things we think are really key here, learning about your audience and adapting. The value of community is to be able to have someone guide you to what they want. You have the frequency of interaction where every piece of content, every experience, every platform you provide to users should always go back to what can I do better based on this? What have they engaged with? What haven't they engaged with? The failures are going to be as strong as the successes. And then finally, it's about planning for collaboration, not just recall. There is still a very strong point in brand planning to making sure that you are distinct and memorable. But what you also need to accept is that brand is built in the consumer's mind, not around a boardroom table. So I think making sure you're the Lego kit of brand perception, giving the instructions on how you want to kind of be constructed in the consumer's mind, and not the kind of fragile model, if you will, to use a very weird hoppy metaphor, is probably one of the ways we need to consider how we brand plan in, in a, an age of branded community. So uh, moving on from that and conscious of time, we'll just jump straight into the third, which is what we call the great COVID crunch. So if the first one was about challenger opportunities in media, and our second is really about the shift from audience to community, Our third is really, how are consumers going to be affected over the next year based on what's happening with COVID? Now, obviously, the pandemic is a hard thing to make blanket statements about. In different countries on Earth right now, there are different phases of the pandemic and different levels of suffering. But I think one of the things we tried to consider was in the U.S. and the U.K. especially, the U.K. being intriguing because of a relaxation of most regulations on COVID, providing it as almost a, a guideline on what's going to happen when you start to pull back some of the measures that have been implemented on consumers' lives. What is, what's going to occur? And I think one of the things we saw is something we call the great crunch. Now, what that really is, is a crunch of the lives we've lived during the pandemic 
uh, and where we wanted to get later on, what our post-pandemic dreams were. We thought there'd be a starting gun as consumers to do this. Pandemic's over. Now you can go live your life. But what we've actually found is the pandemic isn't going away. It's going to fade away. And based on that, there's a realization consumers are going to have that their post-pandemic lives are being built right now. Despite the idea they're still worried about it, every decision they make every day is how they're going to live going forward. And I think when you find that, there's a lot of dissonance and a lot of what we're calling COVID contradictions that you need to understand as a marketer, and also you can help alleviate. So if we dive into some of the opinions on it, one of the things that really struck us looking at uh, attitude towards COVID at the end of March was COVID concerns linger despite the idea that restrictions have started to go away. Obviously, in the U.S., you start to see the impact of some of the surges that are happening in different states, where there's a much higher level of uh, high concern, 21% of the U.S., so they were very concerned versus 9% of the U.K. But naturally, the majority of people here still have some level of concern. 37% of the United States, 39% of the U.K., so they were still concerned about COVID. These are not levels of concern that are going to go away quickly. This has been a learned behavior over multiple years. And that's interesting because at the same point we still hold this level of concern, we have age and, and perceived risk driving it even further. So one of the things we also looked at was considering how fast this concern is, is going away or lingering based on uh, current ages. Obviously, COVID is one of those things that as you're older, it's going to have a greater risk for you. And what we're seeing is that risk profile is playing out, but not as strongly as we may think. So 14% of 18 to 29s across the US and the UK are still very concerned about COVID. of 50 plus are. So there is a a high level of concern segment that is significantly affected by age. However, when we look at just levels of concern in general, uh, 36% of 18 to 29s, 40% of 50 plus, that's not a wildly large difference. And that's because I think everyone still has an intangible worry when it comes to COVID, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. That's especially true because we delved into the UK to look at how do you feel the pandemic is going to end. So what we've seen here is that most people, when asked, uh, say the pandemic is either going to always be with us, it won't end, or that the end is a little further away than expected. Uh, You do have around 14% of 18 to 29s, 11% of 50 plus, I believe it's already over. Like we're, we're just through it, that's it now. But the majority of people are living in a world where we're still waiting for the end of COVID despite the idea we're having to return to work, despite the idea that we're starting to travel without mask again. And that is a level of dissonance that's interesting to think about when it goes how brands can play a role in a post-pandemic life. One of the things that we also looked at was what was the impact of COVID on various aspects of people's lives. Now, one of the surprising things here, uh, when asked if your current situation across finance, social life, personal fitness and health, daily diet, uh, was better, worse, or the same than during the pandemic, a large amount of people in most segments actually said it's just the same. Family relationships, employment, daily routine, and daily diet, the majority of people in both countries said actually it is the same as it was before. What you start to see, though, across personal financial situation, social life, and personal fitness, the things that would be most affected by the lockdown two years ago is that there is a market amount of people, 40% for personal finance, 36% for social life, 33% for personal health, who have said they have been negatively affected because of the pandemic. There's also a a group that said they're better off, but uh, I think for that, it's more of a personal situation. So what we tried to think about then is if these are the the causes of of stress and and damage due to COVID, what does that mean for people's plans going forward? One of the things we saw that was quite interesting is that whether or not COVID impacted your personal fitness and finances, the majority of the U.S. and the U.K. are focused on saving and getting fitter in the next year. So it's intriguing that it was, you know, 30-something percent, depending on the age, that said that their diet or fitness had suffered. But if you look at it, you know, you really have more than half of the population or nearly half in both countries saying they're focused on improving their health and their fitness or their diet. And I think that's an intriguing thing to think about when it comes to this idea of helping consumers reconcile those post-COVID plans that have come too soon. Because at the end of the day, 
It's not just people who were financially damaged or people who put on some COVID pounds that are worried about this. It's everyone. And I think that's a really intriguing thing that you go, we're all coming out of this hoping to be better off than we were before, even those that aren't worse off. It's especially intriguing when we look at some of the behaviors that uh, we picked up during the pandemic and whether or not you expect to continue doing these post-pandemic. So this is specifically in the UK. We asked them a range of things from following a budget, eating healthier, DIY, through to things like buying a pet. And I think what's interesting to find net-net, people are likely or unlikely to do it, is exactly as we saw in the previous slide, following a budget, eating healthier, these are going to be themes that come through in the next year, whether or not you were negatively affected during COVID. But if you're selling uh, pet supplies or if you're attempting to get more people into cryptocurrency, there's a real consideration here that that was propped up by the pandemic and by being at home. And I think, you know, some studies have come out talking about interest in investing and even the performance of the stock market in the U.S. post-COVID. And I think it's an interesting point that, you know, financially we've turned a corner on certain behaviors that are going to have to find new roles in people's lives. It is not a good time to be trying to get people to adopt dogs. That's what I would say. The pandemic lockdown has gone on that one. And I think one of the other interesting things when we think about COVID contradictions is really down to the idea that, fine, we want to get healthier. We want to save money. We also want to travel more. Some of us want to change jobs. Good luck doing all of those at the same time. And I think this balancing act post-COVID is going to be where brands have an opportunity to come in and start to ease the contradictions that are there. We'll give you money advice so you can travel and feel like you're saving more. We'll help you find uh, a better way to do your job or a new job, but you can still feel financially secure. It's interesting that both in the U.S. and the U.K., 24% of the population want to travel and they want to save more at the same time. 12% uh, actually want to quit their job and also save more. So, you know, these are things where there are going to be challenges that are going to be very hard to reconcile on their own. And resolving these COVID contradictions for people is where in our research we saw quite a big opportunity for brands going forward. One thing when we talk about work, just on, on this slide that we think is quite interesting, is I, I think it's worth pointing out that we've talked a lot about the great resignation in the last few years. And I think what our data has shown uh, in the UK is that it's true. A large amount of people relative to before did leave or change their job due to the pandemic. 17% of 18 to 29s, 7% of 50 plus later in their careers did. Those numbers are going to be larger than what existed before. But what is always worth bearing in mind, and we will keep it as alliterative as we can, is that the great resignation is, is good. The great negotiation is also something to think about. 15% of 18 to 29, 70% of 30 to 50s, they ask for different working conditions. And as we would expect, the majority of people's jobs, especially those older and more senior, stayed the same. So actually, when we think about the impact of COVID on work, one of the things we need to think about is various ages and how it's played out differently. You could be talking about the great resignation. You could be talking about the great remaining. See, three R's promise that. Well done. Do what I can. So finally on this. <laughs> on to the piece. <laughs> exactly. On to the post-pandemic persistence. So one of the things we, we thought about last year, uh, just wrapping this section up, is really on what services and behaviors are here to stay. Uh, there's some that despite uh, kind of Netflix's most recent earnings report, you would find that streaming and the gains that streaming have had, they're not going to give that up. Quickly. Consumers see streaming as something that they will regularly still use in the, the next two years at a frequency as of now. Grocery delivery is something that was accelerated during the pandemic and is not going to go back to where it was before. Video conferencing, uh, especially, also is going to hold out. I think it's interesting when we consider things that had pandemic headwinds but then have gone away. Uh, those being home workout equipment, something that still has a, a solid user base, hence uh, Peloton's current campaign focusing on community, shoring up the base there. But it's going to struggle to grow beyond that. One that we think is especially interesting, and we talked about it previously in Pufferfish, 
is quick delivery services, Gorilla, Zap, Gitter. These are intriguing, A, from a market dynamic point of view, the separate from this, uh, and B, from an idea that you know they grew and established themselves during the pandemic, but based on their distribution models, they still have a lot of ceiling to get to on getting users to, to use them at scale, especially outside of metropolitan areas. So while we see that the numbers are low for people thinking they would use these in a few years' time, we feel a lot of this is probably down to the idea of distribution and where it's available right now. And we feel that's a market you're gonna see a lot of growth in if it can get closer to what we see for grocery delivery. So Debose, I just wanted to jump in here then, talk a bit more on the, again, more on the psychology of consumers as it relates to, to COVID-19. And I think probably many are questioning when you think about survey, a response to survey, how does that line up with actual behavior? So if you look at the research on this, oftentimes people's intentions don't line up with their actions. And uh, one thing to keep in mind with all this is consumers' intentions or their values, if those shift, in a way, that's a real thing. That is what they aspire to. And those kinds of messages about health and and uh, saving money and, and, and personal finances and improving those things, that's still something that could resonate with them in the messaging, even if we might question, are they really going to be able to shift their behavior that much? The goal is to try to improve it at least to some extent to help them to enable that, even if we're not expecting people who were eating completely unhealthy before are suddenly health nuts. Right? That kind of complete transformation doesn't typically happen. So then the question is, what actually will change and what stays the same? And when you look at behavioral change, behavioral change is extremely difficult, even uh, after a pandemic, even after two years of uh, completely changed habits. Um, so there are a few things that are likely to stay the same for consumers. And some of these we want to stay the same. For example, our fundamental needs, social needs. We might say we've had two years of social isolation. Maybe people will be okay staying away from others for some time. But clearly that is not the case. You can already see that bounce back right now. People are rushing back into hospitality, into travel, seeing their friends. Uh, so we can see that now that that's been unleashed, it's back. Consumers' core social identities, their values, and their most intensive habits and routines that were there before a pandemic, there's probably a good reason why they were pursuing those. That being said, there's still a lot of room for shifts and those things that will change, especially those things at the margins. So the values and identities that you have at the margins, those things that you were doing, but you, you found you had some pain points there. You were just doing it because that's what you're used to. Those kinds of marginal habits and routines are likely to shift and how those needs that a consumer might have, how those are expressed. So if your routine is going to the gym, but you started to work out at home, maybe you're not going to completely shift, but maybe you might have some more of a hybrid, um, uh, sometimes going to the gym, sometimes working at home, sometimes going to the restaurant, sometimes cooking at home. So shifts in these kinds of behavior, though, they can be significant for a lot of challengers when they think about here are the areas of growth and here's where I can um, uh, find uh, new customers. The other thing I want to add with this in terms of what stays the same and what changes I think there's a lot of focus here on younger consumers because they're the ones whose certain habits have not yet been formed. Uh, and we can see that we saw earlier with the, the graphs on uh, age, that perhaps the older consumers are less likely to change some things. But again, I think this is an area in which uh, challenger brands have an opportunity to really try to lead those older consumers with things like technology, with health, personal finances, those things that they aspire to as well. It's so true. And I think, you know, wrapping up this third one, I think, as you mentioned, you know, there's an aspiration shift here and there's an opportunity, depending on the different audiences you think about, to find a new role for a brand during the COVID crunch. The three things we would say about this when planning on how to act during this crunch, A, recognize there's no going back. Uh, there's a podcast we just put out at the moment with uh, the brilliant Rory Sutherland 
from uh, Ogilvy. And, and one of the things he mentioned when we asked about going back to work is he's like, the phrase going back doesn't sit anymore. You didn't go into the office for up to two years. It's not like you're going back to the way it was before. And I think that sticks with us when we see a lot of the things we've talked about today in that this is a new landscape. Plan to go forward, both as a brand that can't go back to the business model that you had before and as a way to work with consumers and fit into their life. The second, find a role in easing the crunch. I think exactly as we've talked about, figure out exactly where you can start to resolve some of these tensions, some of these shifts that you want uh, you want to help with that consumers are going to be facing. And then finally, considering who you're helping and who you're heroing. I think as, as Rajesh mentioned, one of the things that I, I find really interesting about this is, you know, for different audiences, there are going to be different needs. There are going to be different contradictions. Identify those specifically for the groups, for the segments, for the audiences that matter to you and provide value there. The other thing to consider, though, is the aspirational consumer, who you may hero in some of your messaging, who you may hero in some of your strategy may have shift and will continue to shift based on different audiences. For someone who's quit their job and started to travel the world, that digital nomad idea is quite aspirational. For someone who's just seeking more security or who's just renegotiated where they may uh, they may work, but they stayed at the same job, it's probably much more about being that prosumer, that person who has an amazing home set up. So, you know, there, there is a, a difference to be considered uh, in how you talk about the aspiration that you can help consumers be. So that's kind of the, the three in general. But I, I think one of the things we'd love to say is there's quite a lot of research uh, behind all of these. So if there's any additional questions, any requests, please reach out to us because I think we're very excited to talk more about what we found uh, and also help to delve deeper into some of the, the, the tangents that we covered here and what it may mean for different sectors. Great. So for those of you tuning in live, thank you so much for spending your afternoon or your morning with us. I apologize that we did not get to all the questions, but as you can see, there's a ton of material to go through. And for people who are listening or watching after the fact, hope you enjoyed it. Please do hit us up with questions. As DuBose said, you know where to reach us, but the general email is hello at wearerival.com. And with that, we will see you later. Thanks so much. Thank you. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.